just goes to the grocery store thinking he's going to fix this old gal once and for all. He bought two bags of groceries. After placing them on a porch, he rang her doorbell and then quickly hid in nearby bushes. When the old woman came out and saw the groceries sitting on the porch, she immediately, as you can imagine, began to praise God. She said, God, thank you for sending the food. At that point, the happy atheist jumped out from behind the bushes and said, Aha! It wasn't God who sent that food to you. It was me. I went and bought those groceries. And without hesitating, the woman said, Praise you, dear Lord. Not only did you send the groceries, but you made the devil pay for them. <laughs> you know, when I hear stories like that, it just kind of reminds me that in the final analysis, there are only really two worldviews. The one worldview is that there is a God, that he's the center of the universe, that he's the author, the creator, and the sustainer of all life. On the other side, the view holds that there is no God, that man is the center of the universe and leaving man to ponder how we came about and what the purpose is in life. The other side holds that God has purpose and order and there's a plan to everything that he does. While the other view holds that life is nothing more than a random series of circumstances. There are moral absolutes, the one worldview holds. Moral absolutes, that there is a way that is right. And that if we follow that way, there will be blessings as we go down that path. The other worldview has a view that there is a way that seems right. Make yourself happy. Please yourself. Follow your heart. Do what's best for you. And the end of that path is always destruction. There is a way that seems right. And there is a way that is right. The way of God exposes man to sin. God wants man to realize that we fall short of his glory. It exposes that. The other worldview says, what's sin? I'm okay, you're okay. God wants to reveal sin so that he can reveal our need for a savior. Man says, say from what? There's nothing wrong with me. God's view holds that he's pleased entirely with Jesus Christ. His sinless life his death upon a cross, his resurrection from the dead. Man says, we don't have any need for Jesus. We don't have any need for his death. We don't have any need for forgiveness because after all, there is no God we hold from the very beginning. So why would we have offended someone who doesn't exist? God says that it's faith in him and him alone that will make one pleasing in the sight of God, that one will be declared just in the sight of God. Now what's interesting about the second worldview is I find that there's an interesting turn at this point. Because the second worldview says, well, there is no God. Everything's a series of random circumstances. There is no purpose. There is no plan. There is no order. You find your own way in life. But then they get to this point and they say, but just in case, we'll create our own God. And we'll make him in our image and in our likeness. And therefore, the things that we do, he must accept. God says that the righteousness of God in Christ and Him alone is the only thing that God accepts from mankind. See, God grades on the cross and not on the curve. But man steps up and says, you know what? Just in case we're wrong about our view and there is a God, then certainly He'll recognize our good deeds. And there's a righteousness that comes with works. 
As I think about all this, it leads us back very clearly to Romans chapter 10. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn there with me. Because Romans chapter 10, God exposes to the nation of Israel that they had continued, they had and continued to put their faith in the wrong righteousness. And he wants to expose that to to them and to us. That there is a righteousness that comes from God that is founded in Christ, that is pleasing to God. And then there's a righteousness of works, which is the wrong righteousness, that somehow or another God has to accept our feeble efforts as opposed to what he's done for us. And so as he exposes this wrong righteousness, it helps all of us to understand that there is a way that seems right, but its end ultimately leads to destruction. Brethren, my heart's desire in verse 1 of chapter 10 is my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, speaking specifically of the nation of Israel, we know from chapter 9, is for their salvation. Because the righteousness that they had attained is a righteousness not based on faith, but a righteousness based on their efforts or good works. It says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, the theme of this chapter is Israel's present rejection of the righteousness of God that's found in Christ. Faith in the word of God, declaring that Jesus Christ is the only way that man can ever find forgiveness before God. And so the the exposure here is that Paul moves from you know, divine election or divine sovereignty in chapter 9 to human responsibility in chapter 10. He shows us that divine election and human will work hand in hand and both are equally true. And so he's going to explain three aspects of Israel's rejection of God's righteousness or in, in, in a way that we can understand it, God's plan to reconcile man to himself. How was God going to do it? And he begins to explain, and he gives us three, uh, some reasons for the, the, their rejection. And at this point, it's important as we review these, well, we're just kind of review them quickly, but as we review these points, it's important to understand that this is not a blanket indictment of all Jews as individuals. And it's an appropriate time to bring that out. Because the, the, uh, the indictment, as we look at this, is specifically referring to the nation of Israel as a whole. The nation of Israel as a whole did not embrace the righteousness of God that was found in Christ. We know in John chapter 1 that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. 
that they rejected him. They rejected him as God's Messiah. And uh, it's important that we understand the nation as a whole did that. Now, were there individuals who embraced Christ? And the answer is obvious. Yes, there were. In fact, there were many who were waiting. I think of specifically Simeon and Anna. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, there were godly people who continued to search the scriptures and they looked for signs as to the one that God had promised them, the promised Savior of the world. And it says they were looking and seeking the consolation of Israel. And so they were looking for the, the Savior. John the Baptist is another great example that I thought of, of a man who was looking for. In fact, he said, there is one who's coming after me, though he existed before me. And any of us who know anything about math realize that John the Baptist, chronologically, from an earthly standpoint, was six months older than Jesus, who happened to be his cousin. And the Bible says, there is one who is coming after me who existed even before me. And how is that to be the case? Well, John explains it. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed, you know, in the form of God. In Philippians 2, we read the same thing, and that he became man, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. He's the eternal God of, of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of all life. Colossians 1 says that Jesus holds the universe together. John was looking for the Messiah. And in fact, there was a point in his ministry where he doubted him, and he was thrown in prison. If we remember, he was arrested by Herod and thrown into prison, and he told, told his disciples, John the Baptist's followers, he said, I want you to go and to see Jesus, and I want you to ask him this one simple question. Are you the one we've been waiting for? And if you recall, Jesus sent John's disciples back to him in prison and said, tell John this, that the eyes of the blind are open, and the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Why did he tell them that? Because the signs of God, the word of God said that Messiah, when he came, would do these things that had never been done in the history of the world, that no man had ever done. So he went back and he said, the Lord said this to tell you this. Blind eyes were open, deaf ears here, lame people walked, dead people were raised. And you know what? John the Baptist never asked a question after that. Although, again, he was also executed in that same prison by Herod. You know, I think about people like that. And I think about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, men who doubted the validity of Christ and his claims. Men, as, Joseph, as Nicodemus came even secretly at night to ask, are you the one that we've been waiting for? If so, how do we get into heaven? What's the, what's the plan? What's God's game plan? It says that you'd be born again. Joseph snuck around at night just as Nicodemus did because they were members of the, uh, of the Sanhedrin and, and they were afraid to be seen and identify themselves publicly with Jesus. But we also know at the end of Christ's life as he died on the cross that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had gone out and bought a burial plot so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, that his body would be placed in a grave among those who were wealthy even though he owned nothing himself. See, they searched the scriptures and when the evidence was overwhelming, they believed the word of God. They trusted in Christ. We think of Saul of Tarsus, and we see the example that we have here. The man who God used to write the book of Romans. Saying that, hey, you know what? I, I didn't believe him. I thought he was an imposter. I thought he was a liar. I thought he was a deceiver. But then I saw him for who he really is. And I embraced the Savior. See, the reasons that the nation rejected them were very simple. You say, well, then how did all these individuals receive Christ? And yet collectively as a nation, they did not receive him but rejected him. 
And the indictments that we have are very simple. And he goes out and explains it. They felt no need for salvation. They thought they were okay. After all, we just learned that God, they were chosen by God. They were adopted as sons. They were given the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises and the fathers and even the Christ were given to them. Even though they didn't embrace the Christ, they knew that the Christ would be coming, the Savior of the world would come through the nation of Israel and that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. But they felt no need for salvation. They felt no need for forgiveness. They didn't see that they had done anything wrong in God's sight. The second thing is, and, and, and how can we be guilty when we're so busy doing things for God? We see people all the time that are like that. How can I be a sinner and how can I need saved and how can I need forgiveness? Can't you see how busy I am for God? I'm sure you know people like that. I do. They're busy doing things, but you know what? They're so busy doing their religion that they've never established a relationship with the God of the universe. Religion is nothing more than man's efforts to reach up to God to find themselves pleasing before God. The relationship with God is that God did all the work. He reached down to man. He sent Christ to die for our sins, that whosoever would believe in him would, would not perish but have everlasting life. See, God's saying, I did it all. A man's saying, no, you didn't. You're going to have to accept it our way. Now put yourself in God's position and think for a second you know, how ironic that is and, and also how arrogant that is, which leads to the fact that they were proud and self-righteous, saying, hey, you know what, God, you've got to accept it the way I'm doing it. You have to take me on my terms. Is there anything more arrogant or self-righteous than that? See, because what Paul identifies is that they did not subject themselves, verse 3 of chapter 10, to the righteousness of God. They didn't submit to God's plan. It was man saying, it's my way, not your way. It's our will, not your will. It's our plan, not yours. See, that all falls back in those two worldviews, doesn't it? either see things from God's frame of reference or perspective, or God has to see things if he exists from our frame of reference or perspective. And God says, since I exist, it's my way or no way. See, they also under, uh, misunderstood the law. And what I mean by that is very simple. The goal or the purpose, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 10, says, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. Christ is the goal of God's laws to show us that we can't keep them, to show us that we fall short, to show us that we're not perfect, and to lead us to, well, if we're not perfect, we fall short, we're in trouble, who's going to rescue us? Who's going to save us from the condemnation and the judgment of God? And God says, Jesus will save you if you trust in Him and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin. See, it's a wonderful outline that we have here and as we go through it it's important to note that this indictment of Israel by God does not make God anti-Semite and the reason that I say that is is because God loves people including Israel especially Israel as we'll see and find out in chapter 11 and it's important for us that God loves people and because he loves people he wants to expose our sin Think about it. All Scripture is God-breathed. Literally, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do the works that God has called us to do. 
See, you know, we, we've got to be very careful as we read through Scripture because we become defensive to the point of somehow or another buffering what it is that God wants man to hear. We know people who fall into the category of the rebuke of the Word of God, but we don't want them to feel the entire rebuke of God because we want them to know we care about them, we love them, we're concerned for them, so we try to soften up what God is saying. See, but God doesn't do that. See, the rebuke here is that God loves people while at the same time He hates sin. See, the indictments of Israel are in many ways similar to the charges God, against, God has against all humanity. If you think about it, all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. Every one of us that are listening to these words are guilty before God. Now, if I took it to the extreme, I would then say, well, God must be anti-people. No, he's not. God loves people. And he demonstrated his love for each one of us, yet while we are far away from him in rebellion to him, he still sent Christ to die for us. See, God loves people, but God hates sin. And that's what justice is all about. And we need to recognize that there are absolutes. We live in a culture that is being uh, infiltrated with the, and permeated by a philosophy that there, is no, there are no absolutes. Whatever you believe is fine as long as you believe it and as long as you're sincere, they say. So you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Haven't you been? I've been. We've all been sincere and sincerely wrong. We need to recognize there are absolutes. There is a way that is right. And there is no other way acceptable before God but the right way. See, as we look at this, God loves people. God has, is, and always will be anti-sin and pro-people. But the love for man is not blind to our offenses against him. It is not a blind love. That's why not only is God love, but God is also a God of justice and holiness. And he would be a liar to all of us if he said he will not judge sin. If he says, don't deceive yourself, I'm not mocked, whatever you sow you're going to reap, and he doesn't judge sin, then God is a liar. But the Bible tells us and we know that in him there is no darkness at all, that God cannot lie. And God would be anything less than God if he didn't judge sin. And God would be anything less than God if he did not honor his word when he said, but... While the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God is reliable and he's trustworthy, which leads us back to the original question, that's this. Well, then why did Israel as a nation stumble over Jesus and reject him as their savior? It was very simple. Because they didn't understand the kind of righteousness God wanted or how to get it. They had put their trust in the wrong righteousness. See, like the Pharisees and so many religious people today, they thought only of righteous works or good deeds, doing good things, and that's how God would grade us. They didn't realize that he would grade on the cross and not on the curve. See, they couldn't understand a righteousness that comes by faith, and that's exactly what he's trying to expose here. There, there's two righteousness. One is a righteousness that comes with good works, and if you want to live that way, God holds you to that standard, but you'll never be able to attain it. Then there's the righteousness that comes by faith that basically is, I recognize that I, I am as God says, I'm a sinner, I fall short of the glory of God, that he sent Christ to die for me, I, I, I repent of my sin, I believe in Christ and in him completely for the forgiveness of my sin, and that righteousness is by faith. See, by faith we're saved through, through by, by uh, grace we're saved through faith, and not of our works. 
so that none of us could ever boast before God that we earned our way into heaven. It's Jesus and Jesus crucified. So the question is, as we go through this, what's the remedy for the problem? The problem is the rejection of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that is found in Him. And now we've got to look at what the remedy is because we're all guilty, just as the nation of Israel is guilty, and individuals within the nation were guilty, just as there are in our country those who are guilty, and individually we're guilty. Because God says, this is my plan, and man says, I reject that plan. And God says, is that your final answer? And fortunately for us, that gives us an opportunity to hear the gospel, to be exposed to it, to listen to what his plan is. So the remedy, as we're going to take a look at it, is found in verses 14 through 17. Look again at Romans chapter 10. Verses 14 through 17, we read what God's remedy is for the rejection. And that is this. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, this passage is often used as the basis for the church's missionary program, and I think rightly so. But we've got to remember in context, its first application is to the nation of Israel. The only way that unbelieving Jews, and all others, I may add, the only way that they can find forgiveness or be saved from the consequences of sin, we've seen in verse 13, is what? Is that they would call upon the Lord. The remedy for their rejection is they must call upon the Lord. They must believe on Him, speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. They must believe on Him. Now the question is, what does that mean to believe on Jesus Christ or call upon Him? And for the Jews specifically, it meant that they must believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth truly is the Son of God, the promised one of God, Messiah who had been promised through Abraham by God many, many years ago. That Jesus Christ was a fulfillment, is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. That he is who he claimed to be, very God in human flesh, Messiah, Savior of the world. That he was who God said that he was, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That he was the consolation of Israel, the anticipated one, the one who had been longed for, the one who they had been looking for. They needed to believe that Jesus Christ was not an imposter, but he was Messiah. That's what they needed to believe. Then they also needed to believe that his death upon the cross was by a predetermined plan of God. That it was a sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing in the sight of God for the sins of the world, for all who would believe. Then they needed also to believe that he rose from the dead, exactly as the scriptures said, that God pleased with him, rose him from the dead, and that he's seated at the right hand of God even today, and one day he will come again, and he will be the judge of all the living and the dead. That at the name of Jesus, he was given such a name that, that he, Jesus Christ, would have preeminence over anybody and everybody on the face of the universe. Anybody who would ever walk the, 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 the streets, so to speak, of Jerusalem or anywhere else. That Jesus Christ was who God claims that he was. 
And this is the work of God, that you believe upon him whom he has sent. That's what they needed specifically to believe. Romans 10, we saw 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I had a conversation not too long ago with a gentleman who understood all of that. He heard that. He understood that. He knew he was a sinner. He recognized if that was God's standard that he fell short. He understood that God loved him and sent Christ to die in his place so he wouldn't have to pay the penalty for sin. That if he believed that and accepted him, that he would be forgiven by God. And I asked him, I said, what are you thinking or, or where are you with all this information that you have? And he understood and he said, I haven't yet. And he pointed to his heart. And he said, I haven't believed it in my heart. But he understood all of it. Intellectually, he understood exactly what the gospel is. But he just hasn't surrendered his will yet. We need to pray for him. We need to pray for all those who have heard in their heads and understand the plan of God. But at this point, they still haven't submitted their will to him. I look back on my life and I heard it and I heard it and I saw it exposed in front of me. And I remember thinking for a year and watching people who claimed to be Christians and watching their life and who understood what it meant to be forgiven and to accept Christ and to surrender their heart and their will to Him. And I watched that and understood that. And yet for a year I watched this whole process unfold before I finally waved, my, waved the white flag and said, Lord, I submit to you. I didn't even know what the word submit was. I didn't know what the word subject yourself to him was. I didn't know what it meant for God's will, man's will. I didn't know any of that. But I just knew this, that in my heart, and I gave up. Lord, I've seen enough. I've heard enough. What you're saying, it's overwhelming me. And at best of my ability, I believe that in my heart. See, some of you may be here today. You've heard this all before. But you're still holding out. Why? Because we have the same problem that the, that the, uh, the, the uh, individual Jewish people as well as the nation of Israel had. And that was that they're pride and self-righteous. They still don't believe that they need God. They still don't believe they need to trust in Christ. They still think somehow they can do it on their own. And maybe you're listening and you're thinking the same thing. All I'm here to tell you is that you're wrong. And I say that by the authority of the word of God. Not because I know you. Not because I don't like you. Not because I want to offend you. But because the truth will set you free. See, the remedy was very simple. See, but in order to believe, <clears throat> I want you to see the logic here in the outline. In order to believe, they must hear the word, for it's the word that creates faith in the heart of the hearer. You notice that? Look at verse 17. Faith comes from hearing. You say, well, how do I get faith to trust in Christ? Well, the only way you can get faith to trust in Christ is that you have to hear the word of God. So as you hear the word of God... God uses his word to penetrate our heart to create faith in us that we can receive him and believe in him. See, that's the argument that's laid out here. It means that a messenger of the word must be sent and it's the Lord who does the sending. You know, it's fascinating to me and I want you to listen to this very carefully. It is impossible. It is impossible to be saved, declared righteous before God. It is impossible by hearing and responding to any other message other than that which is clearly taught in the Word of God. And that is that man is a sinner. We fall short of the glory of God. We're condemned. We're on our way to hell. We're separated from God. We're dead spiritually. 
We need to acknowledge that, and we need to respond with faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross in our place, believing in his death, believing in his resurrection. That is the essence of the gospel. It gets no simpler than that. That is the good news of God for man. That's, that's God's plan for man. We need to recognize and understand that any other message is not the gospel. Any other response will not make you any more right before God. Any other response is the wrong righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God that's found in Christ. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. See, we need to also notice carefully that the quotation in Romans 10, 15, if you look back at that, how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings? That that reference is a quote of the Old Testament. Now remember, as a Jewish person who listens to this, they also understand the scripture. And so he quotes Isaiah 52, 7, and he quotes Nahum 1, 15. And it's really important that we look at that and, and not necessarily uh, uh, that we understand the reference has to do with the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. And I'm going to give you some, something that you can read on your own that's fascinating. But you've got to remember that the Assyrian Empire, one of its major cities was the city of Nineveh. Okay, the Ninevites, or Assyrians, were oppressors of the Jewish people. And in fact, it was they who led the nation of Israel into captivity along with the Babylonians. So as we understand the history that goes here, recognize what, what, what Paul is saying at this present point. He is taking from their history something that they have as a point of reference and saying, hey, how blessed are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. Now you say, what were the glad tidings? Well, here's kind of interesting thing. If you know anything about the story of Jonah, God commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh to give them and declare to them what? God's plan for them. If you do not repent of your sin, I will destroy you. Now, Jonah's problem was he hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. He hated what they did to his people. So God says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, which way is that? That way? I'm going this way. And he tried to run from them. And that's the story that unfolds before us of his disobedience to God. And what God had to do to bring him around to seeing things from God's perspective. You know, I think spending three days in the belly of a fish, you got a lot of time to think. And you got a lot of time to think about your worldview versus God's. God's plan versus yours, God's ways versus your way. There's a way that seems right, but it ends up in the belly of a whale with seaweed wrapped around your head. And so, you know, and, and, and by the way, just in case there's some of you who think that that's just some type of allegorical story of some spiritual significance, well, it certainly is spiritually significant. I believe that it's figurative and that it's actual and it's literal. And the reason I believe that is because Jesus used it very clearly as an illustration of illustrating his resurrection from the dead. He says, just as, no, just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. But on the third day, he will raise again. You know, it's amazing to me how people go, well, it's really absurd to believe that a man can live in the belly of a fish for three days. And I just look and I laugh because it's like, you think that's hard for God? I mean, how small is your God? If you think that's hard for God to have a whale or a fish, great fish, swallow a man and have him sustain him and keep him alive for three days in the belly of a whale, let me ask you something. What's harder, to maintain the universe and hold it all together or have some guy sucked up by a fish? I mean, seriously. It's like, you're killing me. Oh, Joe, I can't believe Jesus walked on water. Well, try this. He's also holding the whole universe together. So let me really test you. You know, 
it's just amazing to me. But anyway, the point of all this is this. Jonah didn't want to preach repentance to Nineveh. Why? Because he knew God and knew that if they repented, God would forgive them. And he wouldn't enact judgment upon them. And if you know the story, they responded to the message, they received the message, they repented from their sin, they, they, and God did what he said he was going to do. He graciously relented upon the judgment upon them. 150 years later, they're back to their same antics again. And this time, Nahum 115 is a prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh. The good news that was bore by the messenger was that God had had enough of the Assyrians and that God was going to free the nation of Israel from their oppression. The great news was that God was now going to free them from the Assyrians. That was the great news of the glad tidings of the feet that were beautiful that brought that message. Could you imagine being in such a position where you're oppressed and the person who comes and says, well, I'm here to tell you that God is about to free you from your oppression and he will judge the nation who had harmed you for hundreds of years. Man, I'll tell you what, that was the most beautiful news that they could ever hear. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. In Isaiah 52, 7, the same quotation is used for the purpose of referring to the future when Jesus Christ will come again and he will reign from Jerusalem and the messenger that brings that message that our Lord reigneth from Jerusalem. His feet have stood, are, are standing upon the Mount of Olives and the word of God and the prophecy of God has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ, our Lord reigneth on heaven. It will be done on earth. It will be done just as it is in heaven. Beautiful. But Paul uses it in Romans 10 in a present tense. And the present tense is this. The person that God sends into your life to proclaim the message that you are a sinner, but God loves you anyway, and he sent Christ to die in your place, that if you believe his word, the message, you shall be saved. If you call upon the Lord, you shall be saved. In the present tense, he was trying to help them to see that the message that he was delivering to them was just as beautiful as the message that was delivered to Israel when God freed them from the oppression of Assyria, the message that will be delivered in the future that Jesus Christ reigns on the earth. It's the same message that frees people from oppression, and the oppression in their case is the consequences of sin and judgment. He's saying, man, I got great news for you. And the remedy is very simple, and it's always the same. We hear the gospel. We believe the gospel. And we call upon the Lord. And it's exactly in that order. We must hear the gospel in order to know what God's plan is. We must believe that plan in our hearts. And as we believe that plan, we call upon the Lord to rescue us from sin and judgment of God. How beautiful that is, God's plan. The remedy for Israel's rejection is hearing the word of the gospel and believing on Jesus Christ. The remedy for all of mankind, because there is no difference between Jew and Greek, is that we hear the gospel and we believe on Jesus Christ. That's the only remedy that God has for our dilemma, period. As we look through this, it's a wonderful thing. And I want you to read Acts chapter 8 when you have some time on your own. 
because you say, well, what is it that we're supposed to talk about? And when you look at Romans chapter 10, the whole idea of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, he also also quotes Isaiah 53.1, which is a great messianic uh, prophecy that has to do with the suffering servant. The nation of Israel has traditionally applied that to themselves. But the reality of it is, and we know from Acts chapter 8, that the message applies to Jesus, our suffering servant. He came and he suffered. He died upon the cross. He rose three days later. That was God's plan, and that's what the, that's what the prophecy uh, fulfilled, Isaiah 53. And so he, he shared that with them, to look at the scripture and to read it and see the, the, uh, the, the, um, the accuracy. Psalm 22, talking about Jesus being crucified 800 years before Rome ever came into existence, 800 years before anyone heard of the crucifixion or being crucified as a punishment uh, to, to oppressors. That's a wonderful thing. God's word clearly lays that all out. So he, he quotes Isaiah 53, 1, so that they would understand that Jesus Christ fulfilled the scripture. Acts 8, 26 through 40, we read an example where that's exactly the message that was preached and proclaimed. See, not only is it a matter of believing in Jesus, but it is also obeying the word of God. See, belief without obedience is not belief at all. Faith without it affecting the way we live our life is not godly faith at all. Because if any man's in Christ and he's born again, old things pass away, all things become new. Man, there's a stirring that takes place in the heart of every believer and a conviction of the Holy Spirit of God who is given to us at the time of our confession of faith as a down payment of the promises of God. And our life has to be changed. It can't be the same because God's goal for every one of us is that we're conformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And from my vantage point of looking at myself and looking at those around me, I don't think any of us are very much like Jesus yet. But that's the progress and and the progression of our faith. There has to be a change. There has to be life change. Any other belief is nothing more than just man's idea of his own righteousness. God changes hearts. God changes lives. And he's not done changing the believer who he wants to conform into the image and likeness of Christ. And as you sit there today and listen to these words, there are areas of your life, if you're truly born again, that the Spirit of God saying, hey, I'm talking right now about this that's going on in your life right now. You better confess your sin. You better repent and turn from it. You better knock it off and start doing what's right so that you're a salt, so you're salt and light to the world around you. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. He wants us to be like Jesus so that the world around us can see our lives, so that they can be drawn to us, so that we can do what? So we can share the gospel with them, so that they can believe the gospel, so that they can call upon the Lord, so that they can be saved from the judgment of hell and the consequences that come with it. You know, I think it's important at this time just to throw something out because some of us are kind of, you know, I mean, ask yourself the question, when was the last time? And, you know, here, and I look at this and I go, man, praise God that I came across people in my life who understood the importance of doing what we're talking about right now for people around them. You and I could never come to faith in Christ if somebody didn't share with us the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Think about that for a second. Think about the the, the responsibility of being entrusted with that message. And you say, well, why should we share the gospel? Let me give you four quick reasons. Number one, because of the command of God. Jesus said, you go into all the world and you tell them about me. You teach them to observe the things that I've commanded. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You go into all the world. 
You know, it's amazing to me as, as we're obedient to that command that God gives us ample opportunities because God loves people more than you and I really ever will and ever could. You and I sometimes are just like Jonah. I don't want to share the gospel with that person because I don't like him or her. Think about that. Think about how callous and cold we must be to want, a, a, to want any human being to spend an eternity separated from God in a place of punishment called Hades and ultimately the lake of fire, which we traditionally call hell. How cold can we be that we come in contact with people every day who are dead in their sins and on their way to hell and we know the remedy for their problem and we would not share that with them? Maybe they don't want to hear it, but God doesn't say go into all the world until they give you some opposition. He doesn't say go into all the world and share with them until they say, oh, that's good for you, but not for me, but thanks for coming by. He doesn't give us any point where we can use an excuse to stop doing what he's commanded us to do. And in fact, the second reason is the cry from beneath. If you read Luke chapter 16, you'll read about the man who, the man who was the rich man who was condemned for eternity and waiting God's final judgment in a place called Hades, waiting for the day that he would appear before the great white throne judgment of God to be separated from God for all of eternity. And the cry from beneath is this, go and warn my father's house. While I rejected God, I still love them. I don't want them to come here and end up like me. Please, go and tell them. Tell them what the remedy is. Because I don't want them here. We're not going to party here. We're not going to hang out here. All our friends aren't going to be together. It is a place of loneliness and isolation and separation. It's a place of torture and anguish. There's no second chances once you get here. My fate is doomed. And I await that final judgment. Please go and tell my dad. Tell my mom. Tell my brothers. Tell my sisters. Tell my friends. We were wrong about our worldview. God is right. There's only one hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. And in Him alone. The call from without the vision of the man at Macedonia that Paul heard and saw in his vision. Come over here. We need to hear what it is that God has entrusted to you. We need to hear the message. I can't think of a more wonderful thing that when we share the gospel of God, when we see a response in a human heart that says, you know, that's what I've been waiting to hear. I've been waiting for you. I didn't know it was you, and I didn't even know what I was waiting for, but God affirmed in my heart that that's exactly what it is. I was waiting to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for caring enough about me that you risked being ridiculed, that you risked being made fun of, that you risked being persecuted, that you risked being called a Jesus freak. Thank you. That you didn't care about any of that but about being obedient to the command of God to go into all the world and share the gospel with those who God brings into our life. When was the last time 
at your place of business or in your family or in your home or in your neighborhood or in your school or on your team that you dared to share the gospel with someone you care about? Why is it that if this is such an important thing for us to do, that we do so little of it? Because the deception of the enemy understands the power of this message. And if we who have been entrusted with the message do not share it, there is no hope for those who do not hear it. It's as simple as that. And the constraint from within is very simple. For the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ constrains us. There's no other way to look at it. What are the results? We saw the, uh, the reasons for their rejection. We see the uh, remedy for it. But what's the results of their rejection? Let me just talk to you about three things. Number one, the nation of Israel is guilty as charged before God. It's as simple as it gets. Verse 18 through 21 says, But I surely say they have never heard. He goes on to say in verse 16, However, they did not all heed the glad tidings of God. Not every person responds to the gospel. Not every person believes in their heart. Not every person says, thank you for coming. Not every person says, you know, I love you for sharing. Not every person says, hey, you know what? That's what I've been wanting to hear. No, that's what I've believed in my heart. Some say, that's what I, I hear it. I understand it. I haven't surrendered my heart. I haven't surrendered my will. I haven't believed it in my heart. You know, I mean, there's a various responses. But the wonderful thing is we're not responsible for the responses. We're just responsible to share the message. But what he said to them was very simple, and he's trying to get the nation of Israel to understand what God was saying about them. Not every one of you will embrace the message. He's trying to help them to see. They're saying, well, wait a minute. What was the reasons? What are the results? You're guilty still before God. If you do not embrace the Savior, you do not respond with faith to to Christ and His work on the cross and your place and His death and His resurrection, then you are still guilty before God. And he quotes from from Isaiah 53.1. It says, not everybody received these glad tidings. And he was speaking to people who were guilty. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is what he's asking them. And here's what they said. But I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Their, 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 Their excuse was, I never heard that. And God says, well, excuse me, but you have heard that. Your voice, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's talking about the prophets who who prophesied of the coming of Jesus Christ. Their voice went out to all the earth. They heard the word of God. They saw the works of God in creation. Psalm 19, they understood by the word of God and by the works of God who God is and what his plan was. Romans 1 says that by nature we look and we see the existence of God. He's saying, hey, it's no excuse for the person that says, I never heard the gospel. You're still guilty. Why? Because God says, I have sent people into all the world. And none are with excuse. God holds us accountable to the light that he has given us and none are with, with excuse. See, they're guilty. Now, what's interesting is he says, but I, I say, surely did not, did not Israel know? Listen to this. God had told the nation of Israel even as long ago as through Moses. He says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. 
what he was saying to them very clearly is this. Nation of Israel, is it upsetting you that God has gone to the Gentile world with the message of the gospel? Are you getting jealous? Are you getting angry? Listen, God knew from the beginning he'd have to do that to get your attention. And so because they rejected the Messiah, we are recipients of the gospel. Isn't that great? It's good news, bad news. Bad for them, good for us. It's kind of like, you know, bad for the Ninevites, good for the Israelites. And so I, I look at that and I go, wow, isn't that great? But see, God has always in his word told them to watch for what would happen. When I would send Messiah, you would reject him. Not all of you will embrace him. And in fact, the fact that you've not received him, I'm now going into all the world with the same message of repentance so that those who trust in Christ, I will bring them to myself and I will form this great body called the church. And Jews and Gentiles will be grafted into one body. And what a beautiful picture that is. And those who had not received Christ will be looking at this going, the word of God is very clear that God will offer the forgiveness to the Gentile world. We see all these people coming to faith in Christ. We see Jews accepting Christ. We see Gentiles accepting Christ. We see God form this great body. And in Deuteronomy 32, God says that's exactly what would happen. But what was their problem? They still didn't believe the word of God. What's our problem today? People go, well, I don't believe that. You don't believe what? I don't believe, that, I don't believe that I'm a sinner. I don't believe that Jesus Christ died for me. I don't believe that he rose from the dead. I don't believe any of that. And I say, well, you know what? What's new? The problem is the same. Either we believe God's word or we don't. And it's God's word that we have placed our faith upon. I did not see Jesus rise from the dead. I don't see him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Not literally, I can't see that. I didn't see that. I didn't see him die on the cross. But you know what? I still believe it all happened. Because the word of God tells us that it did. And I have faith and I trust the word of God. How about you? Do you trust the, God, the word of God? If you do, do you also believe what he says? That your friends and your family and your co-workers are going to hell outside of Christ? Then let's do something about it. Let's share with people. Let's talk to people. Let's be bold. I didn't, God says, I didn't give you a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and might to go into the world and boldly proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I love it. I love every opportunity that I get. Every chance somebody gives me says, hey, and we want you to come and give your testimony. You know what? I can't wait. Do I lay up all night long? Do I uh, have a stomach ache and get upset? Yeah, Absolutely. Do I get nervous by all that? It's like, absolutely. But you know why? Because I'm thinking about, man, I sure hope I don't screw up or make an idiot of myself. And you'd think by now I should be used to it. <laughs> but to be able to stand and tell people, hey, you know what? God loves you. And what you need to hear is that you don't have a chance in, 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 in eternity in heaven. <laughs> all right, quick, you guys are quick. It's only taking you about an hour. <laughs> But wow, what are, I mean, can you think of any greater privilege than to tell people what Jesus Christ can do for them? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Hearing about Jesus. Hearing about Jesus. There's something about that name. There's no name sweeter, and there's no name more offensive. I just want to thank God for giving me the ability to be such a great actor. I want to thank God. I want to thank the man above. I want to thank this. I want to thank that for, you know, being such a great athlete. I want to give 
Jesus Christ all the glory and all the praise. There's no applause, man, when someone says that. They're like, uh, okay, next. How about you? I know you're the MVP of the Super Bowl, and we've got to listen to that. But is there anybody else we can talk to? Because there's something about the name of Jesus that's just offensive to the world. And you know why? Because there's no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. And that's what grace is all about. See, verse 21, we close with this. It says, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know what it means, all the day long? It means continually. God has his hands stretched out. You know, I think of Jesus as he overlooked Jerusalem. And he overlooked them and he said, you know, just as a, as a mother hen. And I could just picture him standing there just going, just as a mother hen. Just want to gather all her chicks and bring, her, bring them to herself. All day long, God has his hands out to not only the disobedient and obstinate people of Israel, but the disobedient and obstinate people of the world. All day long. The Apostle Paul went into towns and he preached the gospel from morning till evening. All day long, he preached Jesus and him crucified. All I'm challenging us to think about is, can we talk about him a little bit in the course of a day? See, God's invitation is all day long. His arms are open that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, God wants us to share the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles. God can use our feet and he can use our arms just as he used Paul's. You know, Jesus Christ, as I said, wept over Jerusalem and extended his arms and said, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that a wonderful truth? 2 Peter 3.9 says, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The question is, have you, as an individual, received Christ as your Savior, surrendered your heart, and surrendered your will? The Bible says if that is the case, and that is true, that He's given you the right to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. He's entrusted with you and I the greatest message that man needs to hear, that man is a sinner separated from God, on the, on, the, on the path to destruction and condemnation on the road to hell. And you and I have the privilege to stand and intervene and to be able to share the message of God that there's only one righteousness that's pleasing to God and that's the righteousness that's found in Christ and in Him alone. The rest of the righteousness of the world is wrong righteousness and there's a way that seems right but its end is destruction. I want you to pray that God would give you a burden for people that he has for us and that we act on upon that 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 sensitivity that that conviction whatever you want to call it and that we would boldly act upon it and that we would share the gospel with those whom god brings into our life that someday people will look at us as the messenger and say wow don't you have beautiful feet that you would bring such glad tidings father we just thank you and we love you we just i just want to thank you you for those that you sent into our life, into my family's life, 
who shared the word of God, the very gospel of God. That we could hear the message, that we can believe the gospel, that we could call upon the Lord to be saved. I thank you for them. I just pray that we, each of us, can be just like them and obedient to your call. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.